Thanks for being here this morning. If you have a Bible or can look it up on your phone, turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. We've been going through the book of Daniel for the last 11 to 12 weeks, and we have one more week next week. We'll close it out um, next Sunday. Next Sunday also is the first um, Sunday of Advent, so that is as well. And after the service today, if you can uh, stick around for a few minutes and help us uh, put the Christmas decorations up, um, the Julian, Mike, Julian's going to help head that up. We'd be greatly appreciated um, as well. But Daniel chapter 11. And Daniel chapter 11, uh, Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 is the last vision of Daniel's. And last week we looked at just Daniel chapter 10, which was the introduction to the vision. And this week, chapter 11, I am not going to read the whole chapter. I'm actually just going to read about four verses, and we're going to work our way um, through it. But I'm going to read Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, and then verses 33 and 35. Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, and then 33 and 35. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word, and thanks for the opportunity to hear your word freely. And the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us this morning as we look at this chapter Look at this vision that you would just teach us from it, that you would encourage us from it, and that you would help us with history and with our histories. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a big traveling week for many people. I think they said in the airports that it's going to be one of the busiest ones um, since the whole pandemic, and millions of people are going to be out traveling, being crowd, into crowded uh, airplanes and in crowded airlines. And when you do that, and there's a lot of traveling. There's also many times a lot of questions about what's going to happen, how long should I get there, what's going to take place when I get there, is anybody yell at me if my mask falls off, um, am I getting, how's this going to go, and all these concerns and questions come up. Even before all of this chaos, there were questions and concerns. I don't fly a lot, but the last time I flew was down to Texas, and um, I had Jared with me on one side. I was in the middle, and I thought I was going to have an empty seat uh, to, the, to the window, and right before the plane takes off, somebody comes in, sits down, a very nice lady. She sits down, but she wants the window seat. We give it to her. We take off, and as soon as we start taking off, she starts hyperventilating and uh, just panicked the whole way um, to the point where I literally ha- uh, was reading 
reading scripture to her, talking to her. She was panicked. And then we started to land, um, and every time we hit a little bit, a bit of bump, she would scream uh, and jump. I mean, I was panicked myself by the time I got the end of it. This is traveling. When you travel, there is all kinds of questions, all kinds of turbulence. As a, as a pilot would say, we will be flying, and in Hebrews chapter 11, that's what we are going to do. We're going to fly through 400 years of history. That's what chapter 11 is. That's why for some people it's a hard chapter to read, and it's not the easiest chapter to read, and it's not the easiest chapter to grasp, but it is years of history. And we're going to fly through 400 years of human history this morning, and there may be some turbulence. We are going to see, first of all, just there's heaps of history. Then we're going to pause on a holding pattern for a second, and then we're going to see some hope and help that history can show us. First of all, this is heaps of history. That's what Daniel chapter 11 is from our perspective. If from our perspective, it's history. From Daniel's perspective, this was being told to him about what was going to take place in the future. If you remember in Daniel 11, the angel came to him. He was scared to death. He could hardly stand up. He lost his strength. He finally got his strength, and the angel said to him, now I will show you. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. Now I'm going to give you this long vision. I want to show you what you need to know. And the angel speaks, and he says, and now I will show you the truth. And he gives Daniel a guided tour of 400 years of history of the ancient Near East. And this is where I would encourage you, a good study Bible gives you all kinds of information. I was helped by many books this week, by a study Bible, but also was helped by a guy named Andrew Connors. As we look through this, these heaps of history, and I'm just going to go through this chapter with heaps and heaps of history for us that Daniel was being shown by this angel. And it says in verse 2, and I will show you heaps of history. And he begins, the, annual, the angel does, he begins where Daniel, Daniel was, which is in Persia. And he mentions, verse 2 mentions four kings. It says the fourth king will rise up, who was most likely Xerxes, who, like the verse says, became extremely rich, but he suffered a great defeat by Greece at the Battle of Salamis. And after verse 2, there's this big leap of 130 years to verse 3, and it says, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And that king was Alexander the Great, who we talked about a few weeks ago, who, bought, who brought in the Greek period. And he did as he says in verse 3, he says, and he will do as he wills. Alexander's empire stretched from Greece to North India. But at the height of his career, at the height of his uh, success, he was hit by a fever and died at the age of 33 in 323 BC. And verse 4 says the kingdom was divided into four parts. We're just going to skip through with me if you're following the Bible. Skip through to verse 4. It says that his kingdom was divided into four parts. His four generals took, under, took over control of it. And when that took place, understandably, there was a 
great period of uncertainty that followed. Then it says that two kings rose supreme in what had been Alexander's kingdom. Verse 5 and 6, there's the king of the south and the king of the north, one based in Syria and one based in Egypt. And between the two kingdoms, not belonging to either one of them, was the little land of Israel. They would just get ravaged, tossed back and forth, messed with for years as these two kingdoms fought each other. The first two kings of the south and north are mentioned in verse 5. Ptolemy of Egypt and Seleucus, the first of Syria, who had once been a general in Egypt. And after that, a few more years take place in history. And then in verse 6, it tells us that there was a marriage between the two rivals, which is what people would have done. Ptolemy's daughter, Berenice, married Antiochus II of Syria. And it says it, was a, it seemed like a splendid alliance that these two would get together. And it says in verse Six, but after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Berenice married Antiochus II, but Antiochus II's first wife didn't like that idea. And Laodice, she poisoned Berenice and Antiochus, and killed them. And verse 7 says, And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in her place. Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, rose up, took vengeance, and he won a great victory over the Syrian army. And verse 8 says, He brought back to Egypt a great amount of treasure. He shall carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. But Seleucus' sons, they didn't like this. And verse 10 says, Seleucus, and really the most, Antiochus III especially, went aggressively after Egypt, passing through Palestine again like a flood. But on the border of Egypt, verse 11 says, they were beaten by Ptolemy IV. And then some more years passed by. And verse 13 says the attacks continued again. And then verse 15, it says, as the attacks continued, the Egypt fell. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up sedgeworks and take a well-fortified city. And verse 14 says, some of the violent among the Jews joined them. I mean, the, the, the people of Israel, they've been tossed to and fro. They finally thought, some of them said, hey, there's a guy who's going to get us out of this. They joined him, but that collapsed as well. And then verse 16 says, Antiochus III stood supreme and had pal- taken Palestine, the glorious land from Egypt, from ever, forever. And when you get to verse 17, history repeats itself. There's a a new marriage alliance takes place between the Egyptian king Ptolemy V 
and Antiochus' daughter, Cleopatra. And the Syrian king thought that this was going to be good for him. He thought now for sure he would have Egypt in his hand. But verse 17 says this marriage does not stand. Because as we know from history, Cleopatra loved Ptolemy and was loyal to Egypt. She didn't back her dad. And so Antiochus did not like this at all. So he turned his attention to the coastlands, it says in verse 18. And a Roman commander came and stopped him abruptly. And then verse 19, it says he went back to his own land and he was killed, history says, in a a rebellion. And his successor, Seleucus IV, had to impose heavy taxes to fix the infrastructure excuse me, the infrastructure, and also to pay tribute to Rome at this time. But his people rose up, murdered him in a conspiracy. And then verse 21, all of that history, hundreds of years, cleared the path for Ptolemy IV, called a contemptible person. He took control of the Syrian kingdom that was rightly belonged to his nephew. And then verse 22 says he deposed the Jewish high priest who was called the Prince of the Covenant because someone paid him a large bribe. And Antiochus, it says, was he, he won his way with flattery. That's how he accomplished the world. In verse 25, Ptolemy V goes after Egypt, but a palace plot stops him. And then verse 27, it says the two kings came together for this summit, It says, and as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. They came together to talk. They both lied to each other, and nothing good came of it. Nobody got any benefit at all. Then verse 28, Antiochus IV sets himself up against the Jewish faith, the people of God, and it says he plundered the Jewish temple. History says he killed 80,000 people. And then verse 29, it says, At the appointed time he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. He goes to Egypt, and when he gets there, these ships from Kittim, which really is Rome, the Roman Empire was starting to build power, they stopped him. And there was a general from Rome who had a letter from Rome and he gave it to him and he said, you need to leave now or you're going to be attacked by Rome. And Antiochus wanted to think about it, but the general took a, took a stick, drew a circle around him and said, you have to decide now. And he backed off and he withdrew and he was furious, which is why verse 30 says, He took his rage out on Jerusalem. Verse 31 says he states he sent troops. They entered the temple and they stopped the morning and evening sacrifices and they built an altar to the God of Zeus. The abomination that makes desolation was placed on the altar of burnt offering. And some Jews, it says in verse 32, they caved in. All these years of chaos, all these years of struggle, and they just gave in. But those who knew their God stood firm all through, all the way through. And verse 33 states that they suffered greatly for it. And then Antiochus became an even greater maniac, verses 36 and 37 says. He, he exalted himself 
to the point where he named himself of God, declaring himself to be Zeus, Antiochus Epiphanes. And then verse 38 says, maybe just possibly out of insurance reasons, he, he not only honored those gods, his gods, his father's gods, he, he, he honored the gods that his fathers did not know. And by doing that, it says he was successful. And then verses 40 through 45 talks about this final attack on Egypt. And verse 42, it says it's very successful at first. And then verse 44, it says he hears some troubling and alarming rumors. And then at the end, in verse 45, it says, And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And it's just this slump end to history. I believe verses 40 through 45 are speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes. But I also believe there's enough difference and verses 40 through 45, and you can go home, do your homework this afternoon and look at this. There's enough difference of some of the things that this character in 40 and, verses 40 and 45 did that, it, that, that there, there's, there's, it, there's a future character. These future individuals who are anti-Christ. And a, even more to an, even a possible ultimate future of the anti-Christ. This is what Daniel is seeing. Daniel's standing with this angel, and the angel just shows him this 400 years of future events, of things that are going to take place. And here's the holding pattern question. What is this? What is this chapter? Is it prophecy? Or is this a writing of past events that, that somebody saw it, they happened to watch it, now they're just rewriting history, but they wrote it in such a way that it would seem like prophecy. There's many scholars that believe it was written after all the events that I just described actually took place. But I don't believe that. I, I believe that this is a vision given by Daniel of future events. And the reason why some scholars don't believe it is they don't believe that God can tell the future. But Isaiah 44, 7 and Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says this, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God knows history. He, he can see it, he, he saw it in advance, and I absolutely believe this is a prophetic prophecy showing Daniel some information that he needed. Why did the angel even come to Daniel in the first place? He came to Daniel, as you remember, because Daniel saw the people of Israel going back to Jerusalem. Not many of them were going back. He was an old man in Babylon, and he heard that there was trouble in Jerusalem. He heard that the temple wasn't being built back as quickly as he was hoping, and so he went to prayer and fasting for the people of God. And through his prayer and fasting, the angel appeared to him. The angel appeared to him to tell him, hey, I'm going to give you some information to, as an answer to your prayer. I think the part of this re reason for this vision, its purpose is for prayer and to help the people of God understand what they're going to go through. 
This is why Daniel chapter 11 is important even to us. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This is why a a chapter that seems so old and so somewhat difficult you got to go back and look at all this old ancient history matters to us it was a picture of an answered prayer to daniel who was praying for the people of god god showing him the future so that he could help the people of god know how to endure and see what they're going to have to endure just like we need that same help as well we take off over this plane ride into history, and then we kind of got to pause. If you are around here all the time, at night you'll see all kinds of planes just in holding patterns around Sandwich, waiting to land into O'Hare. This is prophecy, and the holding pattern is, it's, it's, I believe, a, its purpose is for prayer, to help the people of God, to help the people of God who first read it, and to help us as well. So what's some help and hope from this heaps of history that we can get? As we land, I would say first, the help and hope of history for us is that history is held by God. I can remember it was like it was yesterday. My dad substitute taught for us at the school I was at in elementary It must have been a history class. And I remember him writing on the wall talking about history. And he said, what you need to know is that history is his story. And he wrote his and he wrote story. This is what history is. All of history is God's story. It's his story. And history is held by God. God is in control. When you read back over Daniel chapter 11, what should surprise you if you know history and look at history? What should surprise you is, is not what's necessarily in there, but what is not highlighted in there. Years are skipped over. 130 years at one point. Many times events of history take place and they're just skipped over. And certain characters that the world thinks a ton about God doesn't hardly mention at all. There's not much mentioned about Alexander the Great in this. He's mentioned, and then it's just gone, and just history continues. And in the point of history, this is God's story. God highlights what he wants to highlight. What you should also notice is over and over again, it says then, or then, and then. This guy with great power rose up, and then he died. This guy with great power rose up, and then he died. Or only for a time, or the appointed time. None of this is outside the control of God. And none of your life is outside the control of God. God is the pilot of history. And God is the pilot of his story. And from ancient times until today, He's been piloting it around. And we get our stories, and we get our situations, and we get our frustrations, and we wonder why, and all good questions. But we have to remember that history is held by God. And as history is held by God, God is 
patient when you read what he does. He sees horrific things that he allows them. It's, it's part of history, and he's patient in it. And we are also to be patient. But all the great rulers, all the great evils, they come to an end. History is held by God. It's his story. And God's patient. And we have to be patient with the history of our own lives, our own story. Secondly, I think this can tell us that history travel or traveling through his story for Christians will have turbulence. And sometimes the season of turbulence will be severe. Verse 33 says, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. God's angel stood with Daniel. He says, I know you're worried about the people of God right now, Daniel, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but I want you just to see this big picture. This big picture is there's a lot of time still to come. And Daniel, there's a lot of trouble that's going to come to the people of God. Christians are going to go through severe times of turbulence. We've got to remember that, that we are actually the odd ones. All around the world today, and for hundreds of years before us, Christians have not had the freedoms or the privileges to gather, to worship freely and safely. When you look at the scope of history, the scope from our perspective, it seems like this is the way it always has been. But if you reverse it from an American perspective, we are the odd ones. We are the ones that haven't been persecuted or suffered so much. Christians will go through turbulence. Your life will go through turbulence. And sometimes that turbulence will be severe. This is what the angel was trying to show Daniel. As he says, keep praying. Because it's, it's, it's bad now. There will be dark, difficult, and even more difficult times to come. And when we look at our lives, we have to say, we, 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 are, we are the blessed ones in America. We are the blessed ones on the Route 34 corridor to freely be able to worship. This past week, an organization just came out with, in 2021, the top three persecutors of Christians around the world. Nigeria was number one. They, they've said since 2000, they believe 50 to 70,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria since 2000. Number two was the Taliban, who in Afghanistan has been going door to door with, to Christian homes, letting them know if they knew they were a Christian, calling them up and saying, we're coming for you. That was just this past summer. The church in Afghanistan, they believe it just has about 10,000 people. That's it for this entire country. 10,000 Christians scattered around knowing that people are out actively trying to come after them. And North Korea is number three. One million Christians have been killed in North Korea. And 30,000 have been sent to prison camps. History tells us that there's turbulence sometimes for Christians, and sometimes that turbulence is severe. And when it's severe, that doesn't mean God's not still with them, or God's not caring for them. His story's still being written. 
which is why he says, verse 32, but the people who know their gods shall stand firm and take action. When you're in a severe turbulence, and it doesn't turn around quickly, and it might even get more severe, it's not because God's not with you. He's near the brokenhearted. But this is the, this is the traveling that Christians will do that this text tells us. And third, this should help tell us that we are to help others hear his story. The, the, the wise among the people shall make many understand. This is the privilege of us for Christians, that we know the truth, we, we, we know the light, and it's our privilege to help make many understand, to, to tell our others that this is the God's story. Look at, people look at the world and they're like, this makes no sense. There is a darkness that's confusing to people. But we are the ones who can say, yeah, it is dark and it's confusing, but there is a history to this. Someone's telling his story in this. This story is coming to an end. And here's what the end will be. And there's hope for you if you will hear and see who Jesus is. This is why John in his gospel said in John 20, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These accounts are to say to us, history is happening. God's telling a story, and we who know Jesus have the opportunity and the privilege and are called to share his story with people who are going through history so they can know that there's hope for them. And finally, I would say this. History is held by God as we travel through history as Christians, there's going to be turbulence and sometimes it's going to be severe. And we're called to help others hear God's story. We're also called to hang on through his story for you. Hang on through God's history for you. Life has turbulence. And we're called to hang on through this history as Christians because of what we know. Psalm 139 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. We're walking through history, and we got to remind ourselves, even when there's great turbulence, hang on through his story that he wrote for you before you were born, before any day was written, there was a day, these days were written for you, not to hurt you, even though it may be hurtful, but for your good. Many of us are walking into a Thanksgiving week. And I don't know what your family situations are, but there's no perfect family situation. There's all kinds of turbulence that may come this week or this month or next month. But the call for us as Christians is to hang on through it, let it hang on through his story. He's writing these stories for you. He puts you in that family for a particular reason. He puts you in that work situation for a particular reason. Before you were born, he wrote that history for you. 
which means he has a purpose for you there. And for us as Christians, what we can do to help ourselves through that is start developing an eye for Jesus, as Paul Miller says. When you're going through a situation and history and your life is crushing down on you, and you think, what's God doing? Start developing. Look for where is Jesus in this? Where, where, is a, where is Jesus weaving his plan for you and hang on through the history? I mentioned her last week. I'm going to mention her again. Helen Roseveri. She worked for 40, 30 years in the Congo as a missionary doctor. She was savagely, one night, brutalized by a bunch of men that came into her hut. She was beaten, abused, and left for dead. And she stayed after that. She endured it. She hated it. She felt every blow of it. She experienced every trauma of it. But she believed that God had a purpose for her in it. She lived through it. She would tell her story to many people. And many people came to faith. And many people went to the mission field because of her story. And in 2016, she was on her deathbed. And a pastor friend of the United States flew over England to where she was, knew where she was, walked into Seer. Helen was in the bed. She didn't have much longer to live. She couldn't talk much. So he just sat and talked to her and talked. And then her nurse came in. And he was getting ready to leave. He read scripture. He prayed. And the nurse came in and she says, you have anything to say to him before he, he leaves? He's flying back to America. You'll, you'll never see him again this side of eternity. She hadn't spoken the whole time he was there. And the nurse said, is there anything you want to say? And she started to move her mouth. And he leaned in, and Helen Roosevelt said, keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. This is the call of history. This is what we are called to do. This is what Daniel 11 is calling us to do. Our histories are God's stories. And as you're going through the turbulence, keep on keeping on. God is in control of history. And how do we do that? We do it by continually looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith.